they can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me. All I'm looking for in deposition of the defendant is what it is I want to start my case with. It isn't about your war with that lawyer. It's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Today's guest is uh, Judge Paul Byron, and I typically don't spend a lot of time talking about someone's uh, background, uh, but Judge Byron is actually uh, worthy of being a little more in-depth. He, he went to undergraduate at University of Michigan Law School at LSU, but it, it was really his practice after um, graduating from law school that I, I think is just uniquely diverse. He was in the JAG Corps uh, for the United States Army. Um, he was in private practice. He was an assistant United States attorney for the Middle District of Florida for over 10 years. He was a senior trial attorney in Bosnia uh, for the Office of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Tribunal. And uh, he did another stint at the Department of Justice and also has been in private practice. In 2014, he was appointed to the federal bench, and I've had uh, the privilege of trying a case in front of Judge Byron, and he's a, uh, an excellent trial judge. We, we cover a lot of topics. I mean, some interesting stories about his time in Bosnia and what it was like doing that, but we also talk about depositions, client selection, persuading juries, and I enjoyed talking to him about emotionalism in the courtroom. I thought that was interesting, and we even covered topics uh, about adversity and mindfulness. I really think there's something here for everyone. I hope you get something good. Take care. I'm so glad to be here today with uh, Judge Paul Byron, who is a federal district court judge in the Middle District of Florida. I am in his uh, courtroom, which I have been on on this side, uh, trying a case, and it's a pleasure to be here. Let me, uh, let me start with your experience. So when I, when I track your experience from law school, if I'm getting the facts right, you, you come out of law school in 86, you, you're an Army captain and a JAG officer, you go to work for uh, McGuire, Voorhees & Wells, which is kind of a silk stocking, a very good uh, law firm, go from there to work as an assistant United States attorney in the Middle District doing a, a wide range of criminal prosecutions and civil defense. And, uh, and then you go 2001 to 2003 to be a senior trial attorney, the Office of the Prosecutor uh, in an international criminal tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Can right. I just start there? What was that? <laughs> It was an interesting opportunity that came at just the right time in life. You know, I, I think I had been 10 years in DOJ and I, I loved that job, I really did, but I felt like I was starting to repeat myself and that's always been sort of the poison pill for me. When I feel like I'm repeating myself, I get bored and um, the opportunity came up. There was a really great lawyer named Greg Kehoe. He's in a firm in Tampa right now. He was the first assistant U.S. attorney, so number two in the district. He was there. And I was at a um, district-wide conference, and he was speaking about his work at the tribunal, and it was captivating. And I just thought, this is amazing. I had, at that time, been doing some work in Russia with anti-money laundering, helping them to learn how to combat money laundering in the fall of the Soviet Union and the chaos that followed. And so I had made some connections uh, with international 
people, you know, working in these various areas. And when I heard Greg speak about it, I then reached out to somebody I knew who was at the tribunal, Suzanne Hayden, and asked her, you know, how do I get this job? And then she told me to apply. I applied. I spoke with a guy um, named Jimmy Stewart, literally was his name. He was the chief of prosecution, Canadian guy. Uh, We interviewed on the phone. I interviewed with him, flew over, interviewed in person, was given the job. And three weeks later, my whole family, we moved to The Hague. How old were your kids at the time? My son was, I want to say 12. My daughter was eight. And we had um, a two-year-old, no, 14, 11, and two. Yeah, that's about right. 14, 11, and 2. What was your, your wife's first reaction when you said, um, we're moving? I don't think she was surprised. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just by virtue of my personality. I mean, she had been my wife when we were in the military. So okay. she's always been you know, tremendously supportive, great team players. So when I said I wanted to do it, um, she just said, okay, and we packed up the house. I sold my jet ski, sold my car, sold my grill. I mean, all my stuff <laughs> was gone, and we moved to the Netherlands and got a little house there and rolled the kids in school, and I spent half the time in uh, Sarajevo and Mostar and, you know, that area, Bosnia-Herzegovina. I spent wow. most of my time there. What were you doing? When I was in the field, there weren't a lot of us who would go in the field. So when you're at the ICTY, the tribunal, you have the cases that are ongoing, but you have to build your next case that's in the pipeline. So that requires you to go into the field and recruit witnesses who are either fact-based witnesses, so victims of ethnic cleansing, people who were present when a village was shelled, those sort of fact witnesses. You have to establish an international armed conflict that's necessary for the crimes that were being prosecuted. My role, however, was mostly to try to target um, high-level individuals for cooperation. So okay. we would build a dossier on say a camp commander and we would approach him cold in the field. So I'd go with Carrie, my good friend. He was a Dutch Marine who became an investigator. We'd pick up an interpreter along the way and we'd go knock on the door and we would try- You're literally cold calling? Cold calling people in the field. Oh my God. And this is right after the war. So the buildings you know, are still bullet riddled and it's uh, most buildings are still in rubble and there's occasional hot water. And we would just fly into Sarajevo, pick up our truck, go in the field and uh, knock on the camp commander's door and uh, wherever he's working or whatever, tell him we're with the ICTY, want to talk to you. And I always thought you had about 10 minutes to flip them. And that's the period of time to get their attention. And uh, we'd do that and then he'd sit down and have lengthy debriefings, get recorded statements, you know, convince them that they're safer with us than against us. And we did that for two years. What, what was the key to flip this person that you were cold calling in Bosnia at the time. Same thing when I was doing organized crime, you got to find their um, weakness. So you have to find the thing that makes them vulnerable. Personally, it might be their own uh, criminal exposure. It could be that it's somebody that they care about. So for example, there was a gentleman that we wanted to recruit who was well-placed in the Bosnian Croat uh, military political order. His sister was a judge who during the war was rubber stamping some pretty, you know, atrocious verdicts that would then condemn people to terrible fates, but she was under compulsion. I'm being careful not to use their names because they're still out there. And so we knew to get to him, we needed to get to her first. So my friend Carrie and I drove up to her apartment building. We had a a dossier with her judgments and so forth. And um, we knocked on her apartment door, cold just knocked on the door. I remember taking a picture of the building because it was still riddled with bullet holes. And I said to Carrie, no one's gonna believe we're doing this. So I took a picture uh, from still the car. Still have it? Yeah, I still have it. 
And so we went um, to the apartment, knocked on the door. We don't know who's in there. So we see her. We sit down at her coffee table and you know, we have this conversation that um, with the tribunal, Carrie is an investigator. We're doing it through a translator. Uh, we know you did the following things during the war. You can be a defendant at the tribunal or we can refer you to the local military courts or we can give you a pass, but we want to talk to your brother. So we sat in her, in her kitchen. She called her brother. Um, he came over. So we're just waiting. He came over, the door knocks and in he comes. And uh, I just looked him in the eyes and told him, look, you know, if, if you work with us, we will never come to your sister's house again. And I worked with that guy for like two years. He kept oh, introducing wow. me to higher level people who knew things that could, could help us to connect the dots we needed to connect. So building relationships. Uh, dress code, when you're, uh, when you're cold calling these people, what do you wear? You know, uh, we are pretty much on our own. So I'm in khakis and a uh, collared shirt okay. and Carrie is the same, we're unarmed. Our interpreter is typically a college student, sometimes an anesthesiologist who's making some money. And um, we just would meet people cold we need to do a movie of this. Yeah. It feels like a movie. <laughs> it was crazy because we went back so often that you started to get known. And we were prosecuting Bosnian Croats for crimes against Bosnian Muslims right after 9-11, right? So 9-11 just happened. I'm on one of the first flights to Holland when airlines are flying again. Oh, wow. When I flew uh, Martin Air, which is a Dutch carrier, from Orlando to New York to Amsterdam, there were six of us on the plane because the towers had just dropped and they just now had air traffic again. So we get there in this environment and the team says to me, we're gonna have you work on crimes against Bosnian Muslims. Do you have a problem with that? And I'm like, no, not at all. So the way the war happened is Serbs, Croats and Muslims fought each other in Yugoslavia. I'll save you the big picture, but it was a land grab after Yugoslavia imploded. And within Bosnia, all three ethnic groups lived there harmoniously. And then there was ethnic cleansing to move them to different corners of the country to divide up the land. That's really what was going on. So we would always stay in areas that were Muslim held areas. And that's where we would sleep and, and stay. That's where we were safest. And then we'd go into Croat or Serb held areas to recruit people. And that's, we did that over and over and over. Any uh, moments where you felt genuinely threatened for your life or you were worried about that? Um, for example, sitting in the kitchen when the door is knocked in, you're hoping it's the brother and not the brother and three other guys. <laughs> yes, no armed backup. No, not at all. Completely on your own. Did your wife have any idea what no. you were doing at no, that time? No, I didn't tell her. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we would meet, I had one other really interesting little side story. We were meeting a camp commander. For, he ran the Heliodrome, which was like, a, like the Orlando airport. Not, not the big OIA, but the local executive one. And they would use the hangars to house military age males. So 16 to 60, basically. They'd round them up and house them there. And then they were abused and a lot of people died. It was really a very, very tragic situation. Uh, but we wanted to recruit him because he would take us higher up the chain. We were focusing on top political leaders, top military leaders. And so we reach out to him through a friend, through somebody I had met in the way that I described. And he agrees to sit down and talk to us to kind of feel it out. And we go to a hotel on the west side of Mostar, which is Croat held. The east side is Muslim held still. To this day, it's pretty divided. And... Um, I'm in the lobby with this interpreter who's a big guy who fought in the siege of Sarajevo. That's, that city was under siege for four years. And um, he looked at me and he said, how will we know this guy when we see him? Have you met him? I said, I haven't met him. How are you going to know him? I said, he'll be the guy that looks nervous. 
So he walks in the door, I said, that's our guy. We go over, I introduce myself, we go into a hotel room. So there's Carrie, the interpreter, me, the target that we're talking to, and his bodyguard. And the only person carrying a gun is probably his bodyguard. <laughs> so we had a few minutes to chat with him and convince him to come on board. And I spent a week in um, you know, taking a video statement from him that we used later during a trial. Wild, yeah, wild. That was crazy. Uh, best job you ever had or? Best and worst. Best and worst because you feel like you're doing really important stuff, but you are every single day um, talking to people who went through the most horrible you know, tragedies imaginable. So you would, you would talk to someone who would say that, you know, the troops came into our little village. These are little villages. And um, they used tanks to fire into the village. So indirect fire, very indiscriminate. And then as they were leaving their homes because they're non-combatants, for whatever reason, you know, a soldier shot the grandfather just for no reason whatsoever. It was this sort of random, random violence. And you're, you know, you live this all day, every day. And it's just, it becomes your new normal. So, so you're literally a criminal prosecutor through right. the Hague. Right. Um, I was but, working for the UN at the time. Okay. Kofi Annan was our head at the time. So you get seconded to the, to the UN. So I worked for them. What a cool job. What led you to leave that? I think it just, uh, a couple of things, if I'm being honest. Partly it's the emotional drain of being in the field so much. There are a lot of um, countries where their lawyers can't go in the field. It's against their code of ethics to essentially strong arm or um, give people tough choices. You know, you're telling somebody, look, you're going to testify or else. In some countries, that's considered unethical. That's not unethical here. So they would choose us, the Brits, and a couple of others to go. And you get called on to go over and over and over. And it you know gets a bit dangerous. Not, so a, not a desk job. It's not a desk job. So I'd spend half my time in The Hague and half my time in Bosnia or meeting people in Switzerland to debrief them because they felt safe there, that kind of thing. Wow. So you leave there, come back, you're in AUSA again for it looks like about a year. Yeah, about a year. And then you go into private practice. And, and as I told you before, I have the unfair advantage of uh, talking with multiple lawyers who worked with you as a lawyer. And uh, uh, here's the list of, of cases that I've got, just kind of looking at the kinds of things you've done. Uh, prosecuted organized crime, prosecuted money laundering, healthcare fraud, white collar crime, whistleblower claims, represented doctors and, and hospitals on, in the defense side on malpractice claims, represented NASA in employment discrimination, prosecuted products liability claims in federal court and state court, toxic tort cases, 85 trials, 16 appeals in the 11th circuit. You are a driven man. <laughs> Fear of failing. <laughs> That's always kept me going. Um, being in the courtroom is, you know, it's really dynamic as you know. And to me, there's just nothing like it. And it's never gotten old. And so to me, um, I think it is one of those things where when I took trial ad, I realized this is fun. It's you're, you're really in that moment. It's one of the few things in life you do where you're fully present. You know, the, the room could be filled with spectators. You're focused on the witness, the jury, and kind of obliquely the judge. Just don't get that person annoyed and that's good enough. And that, that singularity of what you do is so... Oh. It's incredible, right? I even like the prep part of it prep because when you're preparing, there's a singularity in the focus right. and it's like you can almost rationalize yeah. tunnel vision because you're preparing for trial. Right. It's a beautiful thing. 
And so when I went into the Army JAG, it's like a state attorney's office. They just toss you in. And so, you know, my first case was a guilty plea for a captain, uh, pardon me, a private who told his captain to go, you know, do the impossible to himself. And then uh, the next case I had a few down the road from that was attempted murder, rape, and um, kidnapping case where a couple of privates kidnapped a female private, took her off to a remote part of the post, and then assaulted her and stabbed her and left her to die, but she survived and identified them. And so that was like my third case, I think. There was no real warm up to it. And, um, you know, that is fascinating. You're just really in it. And then when I left there and went to McGuire, which was a great firm, I was in construction litigation, just wasn't a good fit for me. I had been living. You're, you're saying looking at 10,000 documents yeah, yeah. to find a change order wasn't right. exciting exactly enough? Exactly right. Compared to, to the criminal world? Right. So I wanted to be back in the courtroom, so I came to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And that sort of just happened. I had a friend who called and said they're hiring, you know, apply. And I applied and went and did that for 10 years. When, when you went into the uh, civil practice, and it looks like you did that for... About 10 years, 10, 10 11 years. 10, okay. Mm -hmm. Was it what you thought it would be based upon kind of how you visualize it? Because it seems like the bulk of your experience was governmental service, whether it was JAG, AUSA, The Hague, very exciting, very diverse. One day you're going into the civil world. Was it what you thought it would be? It was, it was the right fit for me because first off, I worked with John Overchuck, who you know, he's sadly passed away, but talk about a remarkable human being. I mean, just cutting edge product liability lawyer from when, you know, Jeep rollovers were just happening. So he was at the very beginning of it all. Um, he is the most down to earth, decent person you'll ever meet for someone who's so wildly successful and could be so different than he was. He never lost sight of being, you know, the young guy from Leon County in Tallahassee who loved the Seminoles and was just, you know, a genuinely decent, good guy. And so working with him, he was a great mentor and a really great friend and the practice was exciting. And so I think a different civil practice may not have been a good fit, but that was just the right fit. I didn't know if I'd be any good at it uh, because I hadn't done it. And I was a little concerned that I was jumping into the deep end of the pool, but you know, that's half the fun. What, what was your favorite part? The m most thriving part of private practice? Getting to know the clients, honestly. That's the best part. You know, you, all my other work had been typically representing institutional issues. So if you're at the Department of Justice, you don't have a client. You have a DEA agent or FBI or somebody at the table. And they're your client, so to speak, but it's not that personal connection. So when you're representing you know, 60 people who have cancer of various kinds from working with chlorinated solvents, you get to know them. And you get to know their spouse, you get to know their kids, and when they, you know, when some of them die, you know, you know it and you feel it. And you have that sense that it matters. You know, it, everything I've done, and I've been fortunate enough to feel like it matters, but that direct feeling that you're improving someone's life um, in some measurable way, you know, there's just nothing like it. So that was, to me, that was the best part. Uh, this may be a weird question, but uh, I, I think we tend to learn more sometimes from people's struggles than uh, their wins. And so it's what I'm always fascinated is kind of what's the biggest loss in life you've experienced it? And, and then how did you walk through it? Like personal as well as professional or just legal? You can choose. 
I think personally, uh, my mother raised us as a single mom. You know, my parents split when we were young. And my mother was really responsible. She had a high school education, as did my dad. Um, worked really hard to give us a start in life, and she died when she was 46 from pancreatic cancer. So I came home from college, and um, you know, she had wasted away and didn't want to tell me because, in typical mother fashion, she didn't want to. You know, Shields her baby. Yeah, exactly right. Didn't want me to not focus on my studies. Um, so coming to terms with somebody who, you know, is so important to who you are, you know, and that safety net that you don't realize you, you feel until it's absent, coming to terms with that was a really, really challenging moment in life. But, you know, you just, you move forward. That's just life. You move forward. Um, biggest trial loss? I think in the last couple of years before I left private practice, we had a motorcycle tire failure case involving a Pirelli tire I tried with a friend of mine. Uh, and we went down to Fort Lauderdale, tried the case. Uh, I thought we had put on a really good case. The jury, we're out, we left to go have lunch after the end of a week-long trial. We get a call within an hour saying the jury is a verdict, and I thought that's either really good or really bad. And uh, it was a defense verdict, so really bad <laughs> for us. And it was a sense of, I misread that one. So, you know, that, that feeling that you, you feel like you're you're in the right position throughout yes. the course of the trial and you realize, wow, I really misread that jury, which I didn't typically do. How, how'd you walk through that? You know, again, you just do. You don't feel it the first day. You feel it the second day. The first day is just sort of a little bewildering. The second day, you know, you're a little bit in mourning, not, not from your ego being bruised, but you, this family is not gonna get compensated. And um, you can, I can rationalize and understand why the jury reached the decision they did. These are hard cases. You struggle a bit with it, and then you move forward and you go on to your next case. I mean, so that's, that's a tough one, I think. I have unfortunately experienced that same thing, and, but I haven't experienced the loss of the parent yet. And I'm, I'm nervous about that day. Like, I, I, I think subconsciously, you were talking about the safety net. I think I have almost a subconscious safety, and I'm a grown man, sure. you know. I'm, I'm 50 years old, but I still subconsciously have this notion of... They're there for you. Yes. And they are. And that's just, you know, it's part of life. Then all of a sudden you're it, right? So with me, both my parents are gone, so I'm now the grown-up in the room. <laughs> a little bit terrifying, but that's just part of life. So cycle. is that what it did for you <clears throat> as you kind of had to grow up a little more? A little bit more, right. All of a sudden you really are it. You know, you're, you're on your own, fully on your own. And that's an interesting thing at that young age to, to do that. Do you think it shaped you in good ways? Are there some negative ways? I think adversity shapes you in good ways if you let it. I think it's good for you to kind of uh, let you see what you're made of. One of the things I really enjoyed about my military service was that they tested you in ways you didn't think you would be able to stand up. So for example, when I was in college, I was ROTC. That's how I paid for my college. University my, of Michigan. University of Michigan. My, yes. my uh, colonel uh, at the um, university had been a field artillery airborne officer in Vietnam. And I'll be honest, I wanted to defer it to go to law school. And so I thought, I'm going to go branch field artillery because that's his branch. And I'm going to go to jump school. So I went to jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia. And, um, you know, you're in there with Navy SEALs and other pretty rough guys and gals. <clears throat> and um, that was an interesting and really important experience because it took me physically further than I thought I could go. 
this is long before the days of uh, Ironman competitions, but you know, you're out there and you're getting no sleep and they're working you hard and it's a month of nonstop, you know, and all that. And then jumping out of airplanes at very low altitudes with 400 people at one time, you know, where it's just fairly dangerous. Those things make you realize when you have a challenge ahead of you, whether it's getting through a ton of discovery or prepping for trial, that the best thing you do is just keep moving forward. And I think those life lessons that you just keep moving forward are really valuable. It's not good to have it too easy. Hmm. Hard when you have kids. You just, like with my kids, I want it to be easy for them. I agree. And that's a real challenge, is, yeah. is not letting it be too easy because your, your desire to protect them is overwhelming. Right, I agree. That's a tough one. Hardest thing, like, like, like the concept of, I know it will be good for them to fall. Right, but you don't want to. I don't want them to. That will never end. Uh, what, what has driven you? Like when I, when I think of the strand of life, okay, and now I'm here in the jump school, <laughs> the, the journey of, it seems like adventure, high impact justice situations. You're not pushing paper. And I'm, when I weave your career, you're never doing anything easy or average. I think I've always been really competitive. And I think that's just in my personality. You know, when I played sports as a kid, I was competitive. When I was in the military, um, I remember being in ROTC and we were out on a field training exercise in the Everglades. And there was this guy who I don't know his name, but rather than go to the advanced camp that we were all going to, which was sort of boot camp light, he was going to ranger training, which is really serious. And we're in the Everglades and this guy is talking to me about land navigation. And this is an early impression. I'm probably 18, 19 years old. And he has his compass, because there's no GPS in these days, mm -hmm. right? This is no internet, none of that stuff. So you have a compass and you have a map, topographical map, and you have to find your way around wherever you are, uh, Everglades or wherever it may be. The goal is you find a milk jug hanging in a tree, there's a stamp on it, you stamp your, your ticket, and then you, you finish the course. And we're all in groups. And this guy bolts off, and it's getting dusk out in the Everglades by himself. And, and he was 100% confident. And I just thought that was inspiring. And that kind of said to me, you know, you can be a spectator or you can get in the game. And I just always wanted to be in the game. And that just drove me. And I've been lucky that I've worked around really driven people and that keeps the bar high. So when you're in the military, you know, there is that code of you're responsible, no excuses, leadership you know, being, being the person who accepts responsibility for you and your team. Everyone subordinate to you is your problem. And then when you're in the Department of Justice in the days I was there, we were doing big cases and you came in there and saw people doing big cases. You aspire to that level. So I've had people ahead of me, so to speak, who are really dynamic, who inspired me to try to try to catch up a little bit. And when I got with John, it was the same way. Overchuck was one of these inspiring, larger than life guys. And so you, you want to kind of be a little bit of him. And so yeah. that, you know, that's sort of it. It's, it's interesting because I find, uh, I often tell my kids, the people around you are shaping you. I'm usually thinking of they can shape you, leading you down a bad sure. path. But the other side is when we're around people that have been places we haven't. They can shape us and inspire us. Absolutely, in a yes. very good way. Let your, and, let, and that's not a negative. I've never been um, worried about acknowledging that someone knows more or has done more or you know, 
can be a leader because there are, there are multiple leaders in the room. You don't have to be the only one. It's not an exclusive club. So you surround yourself with great people. That's how great trial teams work. You, yes. know, you get great personalities who are all ambitious, all focused, and they complement each other. They don't try to outshine each other. You, know, you don't try to step on each other. You work like a real team does. And that, I think, goes back to the early military days, that you all win or you all fail. And I, you know, I just think that's a really positive thing. In the trial team setting, do you think there has to be a, a lead guy or woman, you know, like lead counsel who at the end of the day... I really do. Yeah. Somebody has to, you know, it's a linear process trying a case and somebody's got to finally call it. And, you know, John, for example, because of his experience, we had a, a really significant toxic tort case that uh, Steve Eichenplatt may have told yes. you about. I did not want that case at all when it came to the firm because I thought it's not our wheelhouse. We're not good at this. This is not what we do. And John said to me, you know, Paul, this is a really significant case. And the only way to get good at this is to do it. So do it. And he called it, you know, he was, he, he said, was, we're doing it. He said, we're doing it. And it was his firm and he had brought me in and he was very, very generous to me. And, and I said, okay, begrudgingly. And then the case turned out to be a life changing event. And I always joked with him. I said, John, one day when they make the movie about this, it's going to show how you didn't want to do it. And I was all for it. <laughs> you know, so sometimes you just have to look at the wisdom in the room and say, okay, you know, you didn't get where you got for nothing. So I'm going to just follow along and trust you. And we well, trust each other. Steve tells me uh, of, of the projects he's been most proud to have worked on, that's it. And he, he shared with me literally today the impact that case made on people's lives. He still stays in contact with some yeah, of them. Probably yeah. a little more difficult when you're a federal judge for you. But he said it still uh, is making significant impact on a lot of people's lives. I'm incredibly proud of what we did. And it's one of those things where it was a five-year battle. I knew it would be a five-year battle when, when we got into it. And um, when it came to conclusion, and I felt all the defense lawyers I thought were really honorable people who were doing the right thing for their clients. They had to figure out who's responsible for what and what are the defenses and where are we. And the case ultimately resolved, as all those cases do after a lot of hard work, a couple of appeals, you know, a million depositions, reviews of thousands of boxes of records, et cetera. But the impact on individual individuals who really needed the help. Um, I can, I can see it in my mind's eye. You know, it'll be one of those things that I'll take with me into my old age. You know, it's one of my really, really proud moments. I'm really proud of what we did for them. Yeah, great case. One of the things that the memories he carried that he shared with me that I'd, I'd love to talk about is a time where uh, your opposing counsel comes at you as very aggressive and very almost condescending to you in a setting and how you navigated it. He said uh, he was very strategic and unwavering in his goals, regardless of what was coming at you, that you remained strategic and unwavering in the goals of what you wanted to do. That goes back to the early military training, right? You can't let, you can't let things distract you from your objective. Everyone's trying to distract you. People try to do whatever they can do, whether it's intimidation or, I'm not easily intimidated, never have been. I've never been a person who uh, stands down to a, a challenge, never walked away from a fight in my life, whether it's literal or <laughs> figurative. Uh, I'm a big believer that you stand your ground. And um, when somebody 
really challenges me, the response they, they're going to get is a renewed commitment to what I'm doing. You know, that's just always how I've been. I'm a very competitive person. Uh, I don't look for conflict. It's not in my nature, but um, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, deter me from my goals. So if I feel like I'm being stonewalled or if I'm being uh, treated in a dismissive way, then my resolve is usually just strengthened and I try to treat them with civility because I don't want to get down to their level, but I'm just going to outwork them. And that's been my my sort of mantra. I may not be the smartest person in the world, but I'm more than happy to work. Mm. I don't know how he remembered it, and I'm, I'm not really sure what exact moment he was referring to because we had a lot of a lot of battles yes. in that case. He he remembered it as you were uh, steady, um, professional, and unmoved by the other person's uh, emotional, personal attacks. All of that. He said you remained committed to the goal and didn't get distracted. Right. Well, these folks, uh, whoever it was that was treating me in that way, would have came into my life after I had been in Bosnia, right? So what are they going to bring <laughs> that I hadn't seen? I mean, they're not going to kill me, so it can't be that big a deal. Well, for those of us that haven't been to Bosnia, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I go back, by the way, I go back pretty often. <laughs> Do you? Yeah, Cool sure. place? I go back um, to, to work with the local judiciary. I do it in, in Bosnia, Serbia. I was just in Macedonia recently, and I do that a couple of times a year. Oh, wow. Just as a volunteer. That's cool. Yeah, to work with their senior prosecutors and their judges in that region. In How's general. it doing? Doing really well. They're really open to it. We had a Serbian delegation come here a month or two ago. They stayed a week with us and then a week in Washington, and they were great. These are people I've come to know. They came over to my house for dinner and oh, you know cool. they came here and observed some hearings and went to Washington and you know saw some hearings there and just trying to raise their level of efficiency so I go back typically Serbia twice a year and Macedonia once a year once every 18 months or so and then Bosnia you know as needed uh, let me let me get practical on sure. some lawyer stuff and then I want to come back to the story of how you end up on the federal bench um, when you were full-time practicing, if you had to choose between these two categories, which you felt strongest at, okay, um, client selection or deposition? Deposition. John was great at client selection. <laughs> what do you believe the, the key is for uh, effective deposition taking? Treat it like you're in trial. Don't treat it as a warm-up to trial because it may be the only time you get to speak to that witness. So I would approach a deposition of whether it's my uh, witness or your witness, if you're opposing counsel, I would treat it as if we have a jury in the room with the same seriousness, same level of preparation, same focus, you know, and if it's a cross-examination, have a point, get to your point, don't waste a lot of time, uh, find that weakness in that witness's testimony and exploit it like you would at trial. Treat it seriously. What's the key for someone that on the, on the, concept of client selection they don't feel like that's their strongest suit what advice do you give to that person find somebody who's good at it yeah. <laughs> that's true i tend to like most people right me so too. i want to say yes me every too. time me too i wanted to say yes and i didn't always have this sense for how the life of these cases john had that experience i came from a different world so when it came to me evaluating whether it's a good or a bad case, at first I wasn't good. I got better by the end. But in the beginning, I really didn't have a frame of reference to understand the nuances and the tactical decisions, yes. but he really did. I mean, he had a great instinct and a great intuition as to what is going to, you know, 
be successful or not successful. And he also had a real commitment to his clients. So if a case was experiencing challenges that you didn't expect in the beginning, then he wouldn't hesitate to you know, reduce a fee, walk away from a fee, whatever. The client was going to be made whole. That was always the goal. I've actually heard uh, that piece of advice of, of walking away from a fee and cutting a fee as a very common thread of uh, people that have lived good careers. Yeah, it's we just did that. letting go some. Sure. Um, it's not, it's not okay. all about you. Two more categories. Sure. Legal writing, when you were a lawyer, uh, where you're strongest. Legal writing or arguing to a judge? This is going to sound egotistical, but I thought I was good at both. I liked to write. I was an English major, an English and history major in college. I loved to write. I still love to write. And I love arguing before a court. So I, I thought I was really good at both of those. What do you think the key is to those areas? Preparation. Good writing is preparation. Starting early enough to have time to, and it's always not always so easy, but start early enough to have time to revise. Understand your judge and his or her uh, time limitations. So if you're in state court, Judge Kest had a, a conference one time that he spoke at where he said, look, I'm just gonna be honest, I'm really busy. Do an executive summary in the beginning. Help me understand why I should read on. So yes. I started writing the first page, page and a half, you know, was a real, here's why you're here and reading it. And then I got into the details. How about arguing to judges? Uh, be prepared. And again, know your judge. If you come in to argue before me, I've read your material and you'll probably know that because my practice is to summarize where I perceive the party's positions so they'll know at least what I'm thinking and then we can speak to the areas that may re require some resolution. So I, I take pride in letting the lawyers know when they come in, I've read it and here's some proof that I have, but lawyers who appear before judges need to be mindful of how much time they have, how busy that judge's docket is, and to make it linear, answer the question that's asked, don't meander off. What if I don't like the question? That's, that's usually the case, <laughs> but you have to, you have to address that, that question directly. And I, I, that's frustrating to me now as a judge where I'll ask a question and um, a lawyer spends 50% of the time talking about a non-responsive answer, which is just makes it hard for you to hear what they're saying. Yes. So, you know, you're like, I can listen to you at first you'd answer my question. Just answer the question yeah, and be clear good. and be prepared. Okay. Uh, greatest strengths when you were practicing negotiating or persuading juries? Persuading juries. John was a better negotiator. And what, what was the key for you? Pick cases you believe in, uh, have integrity when you try your case. I really felt that my jury at the end of a trial trusted me and it, it was an interesting learning curve when I went to the civil uh, practice because as a prosecutor, you come in with an air of credibility. Most people on the jury think that you're there for the right reason and are trustworthy, most people. And usually the way judges interact with you as a prosecutor, they're sort of implicit, they know you. When you walk into a courtroom as a civil litigant, or litigator rather, you are on equal footing with opposing counsel. That was a, that was a bit of a wake up call for me. You have to earn that credibility, yes. starting in jury selection. But I thought, don't overstate your opening, be respectful to everyone, in cross-examination included, you know, you don't have to be disagreeable to make really great points in cross. You have to be firm and you have to be resolute, but you don't have to be nasty. And I think juries admired and respected that. I think that's an important way to live your life. It's an important way to try a case. So if at the end of the case, they believe that you followed through on your promises in the beginning and did it with integrity, they're going to want to find for you. It's interesting when I hear you say in the civil, you're on equal footing. I always feel 
and I don't know if this is my own insecurity or not, but when I'm trying, uh, and the bulk of what I do is malpractice cases for patients, I feel like I'm in unequal footing. I, I, I almost always feel like as the person who's bringing the claim and suing someone else, that when I first step in, um, whether they will admit to it or not, I feel like I'm starting out a little behind. That's, that's not an unfair observation because for one thing, the individuals that you're, that you're suing are people that society respects. Yes. We, we all have physicians. We like our physicians by and large. We chose them. Uh, we have friends who are physicians perhaps and we think they're good people because they are. And you know, good people make mistakes. That's just life. Good companies make mistakes. That's life. And um, so you do have to overcome that implicit bias. Um, that's true when you're doing an, an auto products case because you're saying to a jury, um, this product is defectively designed and they know intuitively, A, they drive or use similar types of products, so they'd like to believe they're trustworthy and reliable. So you have to, your messaging matters. Not, again, don't overstate it. Talk about this is not an indictment of the entire industry. This, you know, in any production, you're going to have some irregularities or problems and this is that and this is not saying you know you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater but you do you have to earn that trust but when you have physicians on the other side or hospitals it's a i think it's a tougher road to hoe uh, yeah. people don't feel directly connected to companies as yes. they do with physicians I, I feel like they'll connect with you but you have to earn it you, you literally have to show um I'm here to be fair. I'm not here to be unfair. Right. Uh, going back to skills, okay. Um, if you had to, in your prime, jury trials or appellate oral argument for you? I think jury trials. I did more of them. Yes. I, I did a lot of appeals. I did 16 at the 11th. I did a couple DCA appeals. I felt I was pretty good at that, uh, but my real... I think my passion and therefore my interest was in front of a jury, you know, it's persuading that group. When you're arguing to three judges, it's different. You know, they, they, I always sort of thought when I went into the appellate world that they kind of had their mind made up. They may have one question or two questions, but it, it's sort of a pro forma. With a jury, it's a blank slate. So I think that's a harder skill set. Yes. What, what has most surprised you as a sitting judge about how juries work? the dynamic amongst jurors? Their application of common sense. You know, I always thought that they applied common sense and we tell them to apply common sense, but they really, really do. You can see it in the questions they're asking at the end of a trial when I get the questions as, as happens fairly often um, and how collaborative they are. And they are really collaborative. And I'll tell you why I think that. In my practice here, I go down to the jury pool before every jury trial to greet them. So when the whole venire comes in and they're down there and they've seen the video and they've traveled in from all over the place to come here, um, I go down and greet them. I don't talk about the case. They don't know if it's a civil or a criminal case, but I tell them a little bit about the district and I tell them how grateful I am they're here because our, our jurors come as far away as Daytona, Coco, you know, it's a, it's a hall. And so I ask them, you know, who came from that far away and I thank them and, you know, we, we bond a little bit. And then we go through jury selection. When the trial's over, I always go back and talk to them in every case to thank them and just to see how they are. And I don't want to talk about their deliberations, but you can tell from their interaction, they've become a unit. They really have. 
and it's really uh, something. Uh, one thing my wife does that I really love is for every jury trial we have, she loves to bake. She bakes for all my juries. So during the course of their trials, they get cake or cookies or whatever on a regular they must basis. Love get, getting you as a judge. Yeah. Well, I figure if you if you snack together, you'll probably vote together. <laughs> Maybe less less, less mistrials. Let's hope. It's Who knows? it's interesting because a, a local uh, circuit court judge. I tried a protracted jury trial with him, and his wife would bake. And um, but what he would do is he would have coffee hour in the afternoon with some baked goods and the lawyers back in the chambers with oh, the judge. Nice. And what, what he found is in a protracted trial, um, if you knew you were going to have to have coffee with this person and eat a cookie It'd with the nice. judge, yeah. you were a little more conscious yeah. of uh, how you treated each other. Sure, I think that's really important. And I tell lawyers when they come in, you know, it's, it's an adversarial process and I understand that, but you know, there's an expectation of civility in here that you're, that I really enforce strictly. It's very important. But the, for the jury, you know, my wife takes the view, if they're coming from home to here, they'd have, they should have something that is a thank you more than just a thank you. So she likes to bake and she always does. She that's has a great, really, great collection really cool. of cards from them and stuff. It's fun. Very cool. Well, um, you end up getting um, confirmed by the United States Senate to be a federal district judge in June of 2014. I heard a story, um, you were nominated by President Obama, and I heard a story of the, the first time that you met President Obama. And the story that I heard, <laughs> you can confirm it as accurate or not, um, was that it was a smaller setting, it was very early in the, uh, political process. Right. Uh, at the time, President Obama wasn't President Obama. He was Senator Obama, and very few people thought he had a chance. He was in the pack of many. There was 15 or 16, you know, potential candidates. Yeah, I remember. And the and and what I heard was smaller setting, not a ton of people in a local house, and and you proceed to ask the president. Uh, well, at the time, Senator, um, a very obscure international relations <laughs> question about some treaty or pact. Right, kind of panicked. What happened was we're in, we're supposed to be at this fundraiser and my friend invites me to come. And I said, who's it for? And he said, Barack Obama. I said, who's that? And he said, it's a senator from Illinois. And I said, why am I giving money to a senator from Illinois? This is when I was in private practice yes. and you could give money then, you can't do that now. And uh, he said, trust me, he's, he's the real deal. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go and listen to him. It was raining out, pouring out. So the people hosting the event had everyone in their house instead of the garden where they were gonna do it. And it comes to the point in time where then Senator Obama goes on the staircase to give a stump speech and he does a really great job. And he opens the floor to questions. People ask questions and they're kind of softball ones. And after three or four questions, it goes silent. And you know, you get that feeling like somebody has to say something. <laughs> so I did, I, I raised my hand and, and he, he acknowledged me and I said, uh, you know, if you're confirmed as president, will you ratify the Treaty of Rome? And he launches into this balanced explanation of why the Treaty of Rome should or shouldn't be ratified, which is the treaty creating the International Criminal Court. And he does a wonderful job explaining it. My friend who invited me leans over and says, what the hell kind of question was that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Senator Obama comes up to me, makes a direct walk over to me and goes, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a plaintiff's lawyer. He goes, what did you do for a living? <laughs> I said, I worked at the war crimes tribunal. He goes, I thought so. 
and then we chatted for a bit, got a nice photograph together, and off he went. What a, what a cool story. Yeah, I just kind of popped out of my mouth. <laughs> uh, did you always want to be a judge? No, I never was interested in being a judge. What, what, what leads you to the decision to leave a, what, what from my appearance of looking at it was a very successful private practice where you still had a lot of time to continue to build that practice and develop it and with unlimited potential why you would leave that to do a government job, no, which I is a, I, I the best government right. job, right. lifetime tenure right. and impactful. Sure. Right. I mean, look, I had people that worked for me in my firm that make more than I make now. <laughs> I, had, I had people who were non-lawyers that I paid more than, than they pay us, but that's okay. Um, it was one of those, the way it actually happened in, in the real sense is I went to Judge Antone's senior portrait hanging ceremony. So judges go senior at a certain age and they have a, a portrait commission. They hang in the ceremonial courtroom and they have a little party. Um, and John Antone had his and I went and there's a ton of lawyers there. You might've been at it and there was a lot of people there. And the event is over and I'm leaving and a marshal named Eric Thompson, who's retired now, but had been a young marshal when I was a young prosecutor, walked up to me as I'm leaving and says, you need to apply for that vacancy. And I said, no, I don't know if I wanna do that. And he said, just apply. So I thought about it and I talked to my wife and I said, I'm thinking about applying for this. And she said, look, do it if you want to. So I did and I thought honestly that I would not get it that it would be um, a first attempt. And then when someone else went senior a few years later, I try again. <laughs> and then I'm, I get the call that I'm on the list of people to be interviewed. I do the interview and that night I get a call saying I'm one of the two or three names for this particular vacancy. Um, and then it moved very quickly. And, and before I knew it, I think it was, I might've been nominated in November and by June, I was, I was confirmed, meaning I had my confirmation hearing and everything had already taken place. It was really fast. I, 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 in preparing for today, I, I read your written responses to the Senate questions, and it was fascinating. I mean, written questions from Senator Ted Cruz that six or seven questions, substantive questions. Um, but one of the interesting things was how quickly the questions were sent to you and then literally it seemed like two days later you're filing these written responses to substantive questions that seems about right and um, the whole process you know you do this application when you're being vetted by the judicial nominating committee and it's very exhaustive yeah. i mean it covers yeah. every aspect of your professional career including you know top 10 cases all the lawyers you've tried cases against so they can interview these folks that's the easy part. Then when you get the soft nomination, so you get told you're presumptively nominated, they do the background. A little bit easier for me because I'd held fairly high level security clearances in the past, but the FBI does an investigation, the IRS does an investigation, chief of staff for both state senators interview you at length, then you go to DC and you're interviewed by the state senators personally. Then the president does the nomination. Then there's the judicial uh, confirmation hearing at the Senate Judiciary with a whole new application process and then written questions that follow. And um, those are substantive and they do expect a prompt turnaround. So I'm practicing law at the time I'm doing this. And then at the uh, confirmation hearing, I remember being asked a 10th Amendment states right question by Senator Grassley. Other people were getting questions, you know, what kind of tree would you be if you were a tree? I get 10th Amendment. <laughs> he was so, the other written questions, <laughs> yeah, I noticed that, yeah. Yeah, he was, yes. he was. But it's exhaustive and I, I don't, I'm not complaining, it should be. 
it should be it should be tough. And I liked it when we had to have 60 votes because I think you should have to cross party lines. I had 94 to nothing, so that's pretty good. Uh, what's the best part of being a federal district judge? It's the pure practice of law. And I've always, as you can imagine from my background, been drawn to public service. It's just something about it. I've never been, I enjoyed making money with um, John Overchuck. It was good for my family and it's really been a great benefit, but it's never really inspired me. So there's, there's something more to life, I think, for me personally, than just making money. And when I was in the military, I loved it. When I was in the, uh, the Department of Justice, Where I loved it. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? It must be in our DNA. You know, my grandfather, who I'm named after, was in World War I and World War II. One of the few people on the planet to, f to be in both, because he was very young in the first one and very old in the second one. And then my dad was in the Korean War, and then I was in the military, but non-combat non times, thankfully. And um, it's, I've always been one of those people when you ask for a volunteer, I, I don't stand down, I don't like it. I'm always amazed when more people don't volunteer. So it's just something about that has always driven me. And it's in our, it's in our blood somewhere because my son's a state prosecutor. My middle daughter is a mental health therapist and my youngest one's going to school probably to be a teacher or maybe go to law school. She's, she's tossed up on it right now. In terms of judge stuff, uh, I, want, I think what a lot of state court practitioners miss out on if they don't practice at all in federal court is they don't realize the level of, uh, well, there are things that I don't like about federal court, but the level of excellence that goes into the legal analysis is, I think most state court practitioners would be shocked. I mean, at the level of thought, the, I, I remember trying a case in front of you coming in in the morning and your law clerk has, based upon changes in the evidence, revised jury instructions that are waiting for us when we come in. Right. And you know what drives that? I don't want to keep the jury waiting. So I'm mindful of their time. And so um, when something's happening in real time during yes. the trial, we do it during the evening. And then the morning you get it before they come in. So they start like, like it's, it's a Broadway play, you know, it's happening yes. on time and it moves on time and they don't see the behind the scenes stuff and nor should they. Yeah. That's, that's, that's for us to do. The, um, interesting thing about federal court that a lot of people don't realize in, in the middle district here, we at the moment only have three active district judges in Orlando. We have four senior judges and they take varying amounts of caseload. Judge Presnell, still thinks he's full-time <laughs> he's a very hard-working man and the others are, are hard-working too but they've earned their right to be part-time and they and they could go home and draw their pay for life so they're they're doing it because they love it and um so there's three of us and we have this by federal standards a very big caseload and uh, most of our cases are pretty intensive factually you know we have some just gigantic cases but we pride ourselves on reading everything. I mean, if you file it, it is read and it is fact checked and we write and we write opinions and we just, you know, you do what you have to do. You just do it. And so the law clerks are brilliant. They work really hard. What a great, what a great internship experience for them though, because they see so That's, much yes. so young. And then when they leave, they've grown so much. I mean, it's really great to watch them come in and when they leave, you know, they're, they're different people than when they arrived. But we take a lot of pride in the detail, but we also don't have the caseload state court does. You know, there's a lot more of those judges there, but they cover a much broader 
practice than we do, and they handle so much more volume. We could, I don't know how they do it, honestly. Yes. One, one of the things that I, uh, I really like, by the way, of the federal court, um, I don't like all the formality and the, you know, but, but I do like, uh, I remember in the case that I tried in front of you, I got snarky at one point. I just was a human being and I reacted emotionally publicly in front of the jury and you called me to sidebar. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what you said. But I don't was, remember doing this. But it was very clear message. It was, <laughs> you're not doing that. Um, that sounds right. <laughs> and, and I said, yes, sir. And then, but, but what landed with me was, okay, the emotionalism that is just... Uh, being snarky, sarcastic, rolling your eyes, raising your voice is not acceptable in this arena. I think we need more of that. You know, we, I, I like the freedom, but I also think there's, there's some order that comes in federal court that's a good thing. Right. It's not persuasive, number one. Juries hate that stuff. They really do. Uh, and and I, I can tell you, I've done it too as a litigator, because sometimes your button gets pushed and we're just people. Um, but um, it's not persuasive and we do have a decorum thing here that's important and you can see the way we comport ourselves as well you know on the bench we try yes. to be professional and polite but it's you know a bit of a distance it's just the nature of federal court um, we do see ourselves I think correctly as a third branch of government so it's not just trying your case we have a different function um, at the at the national level of being that third branch and you have to always be mindful that the people who are in your courtroom, whether they're lawyers, the parties you represent, or the jurors, they go home and they talk to other people about their experience. And the dignity of, of the federal court is necessary because you're co-equal with the, with the executive branch and the legislative branch at the national level. And if you lose sight of that bigger role, you're kind of missing the point of the job. Um, more so than the day-to-day -day grinding out cases. It's, it's that you are that um, part of the government that is sort of immutable. You know, we're the quiet branch of government. We don't talk much about it, but it is, it is a co-equal branch, and it's it's serious. What's the most common ineffective thing that you see lawyers doing with juries? In other words, they're not aware how ineffective it is. They think they're they're being effective, and you're watching it, and you know you're like that just doesn't work. Failure to take adequate time in opening statement. It, it just boggles my mind the number of times that I've had, and this happens a lot with uh, young prosecutors who come in and young federal defenders who are people that, you know, we feel sort of a kinship with because you see them every day. And um, I've had young prosecutors and federal defenders come in and I'll ask them beforehand how much time you want for opening. And I, t mm -hmm. I caveat it by telling people I don't really limit your opening unless it's outrageously long. So let's, you know, I want, you know your case, tell me how much time you need. This is important. So I'm going to give you the time you need to do it. And I tell them you can use demonstratives. Any exhibit that's not objected to can be displayed. You know, let's make this an educational process. The number of times I've had lawyers say 20 minutes. And I thought, you can't say anything in 20 minutes. You need to lay out your case on whichever side you're on in that opening in a way that makes sense. And then particularly if you have the burden of proof. I mean, what a golden opportunity to speak first. So you speak first. You tell them why should you care in the first five minutes, right? That's the trailer to the movie. This is why I care. And then you walk through how are you going to, you know, what the movie's going to look like, what your case will look like. Show them any exhibit you can so that they see it again. And then in the 
course of the trial, you're proving up what you said you would, and in closing, you're saying, see, I did it. And if you spend 20 minutes in the beginning, you might be three days into trial before anyone figures out what's going on. Yeah. And I've seen that mistake where I've been on the bench. In criminal cases, we don't know the facts much more than the jury does, unless there's a motion to suppress or something where it's out in front of me. Otherwise, it's an indictment, and, and it says what it says, pretty bare bones. Civil cases, of course, we have summary judgment, motions to dismiss, deposition designations. I, I get to know the case a bit. But in criminal cases, I don't. And I've had one or two experiences where I'm a week into trial going, I wonder what the government's theory is. How, how do you reply to the, uh, the counter in my head? And I, I like opening, but I'm, I'm also always worried about um, attention span. Right. There's a balance, and you, and you know your case, so you strike the balance. And what I tell people when I'm talking about good openings, you don't want to refer to witnesses by name, talk, to, talk about categories. They're not going to remember the names. So you can talk about, we're going to have records custodians from banks. They're going to do the following. We're going to have, you know, whatever it may be. You're talking in categorical ways. Um, That's so you, good. Yeah, because people won't remember. I've also seen lawyers trying to be familiar They'll try to refer to witnesses by the first name, which we don't allow here. You can use first and last, but no first names. But sometimes they'll float in and out, and sometimes I call them on, and frankly, sometimes I don't. But I've had jurors who afterwards, when I'm talking to them, say, boy, we had such a hard time figuring out who they're talking about because they keep changing the name. That makes sense. Right. So remember, lawyers, they are hearing it for one time. Which is why when judges sustain objections to cumulative because a question is asked twice, that's a mistake. The jury needs to hear it twice. Cumulative is when it goes on too, too much. But more than once, yes, it's about repetition. So they understand it. So if I get a cumulative objection when the question's asked the second time, I'm going to look at you like, you've got to be kidding me. Let this jury understand. I mean, my job up there is to make sure the jury gets reliable evidence and in an environment where they can understand it. That's all I care about. That's good. That's really good. Um, it seems to me like in your world of dealing with the most vile of, you know, typically federal criminal cases can be some of the worst of the worst. Um, you're dealing with all the problems of the world in terms of legal disputes. And um, I, what I want to ask you is, how do you not turn hard-hearted? Do you see what I'm saying? Sure. Like you're a firm judge, you're a strong judge. You're, no one's looking at you thinking this is not your courtroom that you're running in the way you want. But you, you do not have a hard heart, in my impression, towards either side. I don't. And with defendants, you know, there are, there are, there are hearings in front of me where the defense will ask for, let's say they ask for 10 years, which would be below the guideline sentence. Guidelines are not mandatory here. They're advisory. And there have been times where I've given sentences below what their lawyers asked for, because I think that's what's warranted. There are times when the government's asked for 10 years and I've given more than what the government's asked for, because I think that's what's warranted. I really have a process where I try to uh, internalize that case and not, not get jaded. So let me just start by saying I've spent, for reasons that were unplanned and unscripted by me, I've spent so much of my life dealing with the horrible things in, in the world, you know, either crime in the military or in the war crimes tribunal or drug trafficking where some of your cooperating witnesses are pregnant and addicted to heroin. You know, so I've seen this stuff. I've been to mass graves. I've seen things that should probably have made me more jaded, but haven't. 
Uh, and I think that's partly because I really do firmly believe in the inherent goodness of people. I, re I really do believe that. I think people are redeemable by and large, not everyone, but by and large. I think good people do bad things. And you have to look when you're dealing with individual defendants on the nature of the crime. Now, violent crimes against children, you know, they're in a world of their own. Uh, but when you're dealing with people who uh, come before us who are, say, drug traffickers, they often have a background that you can almost predict before you look at the pre-sentence report. Poor, absent family, crime-ridden neighborhoods. And you have to say to yourself fairly often, if I took that person, put him in my house, they would not be that person. Mm. And that is just it's a reality. True. It's true. Yeah. It is just a fact. And, the, and you can ignore it because that's convenient, but it's a fact that they were not given the best start. Yeah, they made bad choices. I didn't have an easy start either, but it wasn't as bad as theirs. I had a parent who cared and guided me and you know, gave me a moral compass. Those things are, are big tools. Um, but I do think that there are people who are redeemable. And there are some people who in their sentencing comments to me increase their sentence because they show no remorse whatsoever. So it's, a, it's an organic process. So what I do is I look at the uh, pre-sentence report, which is a very detailed report of that person's life, their mental, educational background, how intelligent are they, you know, what problems they have, the specifics of the crime, and I prepare for that in advance of the hearing, and I set it aside, and then I come back to it a few days later, and then I, I kind of just take time to let it percolate. Is, and then is I, there anything you do, though, to stay soft and tender to people, like, like, like strategies? Because I find myself, even in my own world, dealing with a occasionally opposing counsel that makes me sour on the world like I'm you know like the pieces of humanity I don't like in people clients my own and others you yeah. know all yeah. these things yeah. I, I I feel like I'm often fighting right to stay sensitive and tender-hearted well what you're talking about is being mindful Right, and it's yeah. a really important thing is to practice mindfulness. I don't wanna sound like a yogi here, but the truth is you have to practice mindfulness. So you have to take a little bit of every day and focus on what's good in the world and not what's bad in the world. And that's not my natural go-to response in life for a lot of reasons. My wife, that is her natural go-to, she sees bunnies and rainbows everywhere. I like bunnies uh, and rainbows. They're fantastic, I don't typically see them. I see the hawk picking off the bunny <laughs> and flying away with it. But you have to practice that mindfulness where you just take a moment to remember, you know, we operate in a bubble. If, so let's say you're a, an oncologist. Everyone you see has cancer. Well, not everyone has cancer, but everyone you see has cancer. So you have to take that time to just kind of step back and, um, and be mindful. So when I'm doing my job as a judge, and I see it as, you know, it's a job. When I do my job, I am mindful of how hard it is to be a trial lawyer. And so I remember, you know, I make a point of remembering these people have multiple cases, they have families, they have obligations, they have good days and they have crummy days, just like every other human being. And you have to be mindful that they're going to have bad moments. So whatever happened in your case with me, which I honestly don't remember, we, we had a chat because I do think it's important to be mindful that we're all human, yeah, I, would, I don't call people out in front of the jury. I do Correct. it off to the side because that can be damaging. That's an overreaction. And, um, you know, being mindful that, that there are good things in life and just focus on that. When I'm judging, I try to be mindful of the fact that the defendant in front of me, you know, maybe an 
a, a person who had every opportunity is just an awful person, or it may be a person who's a good person who's had awful opportunities. And you have to be aware. And then the, the goal of, of incarceration is rehabilitation and punishment, but rehabilitation. So how much is enough? That becomes the tough question, right? What, what is more than is necessary to protect the society and to, and to impress upon this person the need to change their behavior? That's what you're shooting for, not some arbitrary number written by somebody who doesn't know this person. And so you have to be mindful, which makes it really hard. So when I was practicing, if I got annoyed by somebody, I'd be mindful that, you know what? They're not relevant to me. You know, the people I care about are relevant to me. No one else is. And then just move forward. That's good. That's good. Uh, this, this may seem odd. And I go to the gym. You got to work out. So that's literally where I was going. I'm looking at you. You seem fit. You seem healthy. You, you seem very energetic and... What are the habits that in your life you've built in to keep youthfulness, mm -hmm. vitality, strength, energy? My entire life, probably starting with sports as a kid, but really at 17 when the running craze had hit back in the 70s, right? Because I'm almost 60. I'll be 60 in July. Um, I always have worked out every morning. So I work out every morning before work. Did it in private practice. Did it in the Army. Had to in the Army. It's mandatory. <laughs> Uh, did it in The Hague, you know, you, I'd get up and go run and whatever, whatever it is you like to do. But I work out every morning, uh, five Seven day, days a week, five days a week. And then we do yoga at night, two to three times a week. And then <clears throat> this week, you weekend, are a yogi. You, you, yeah, <laughs> no, not really. You should see me do yoga. And then, uh, and then when I was at the beach this weekend, I'm out paddle boarding in the ocean. I mean, you know, just, you got to keep physically fit. It's so important. So don't, you know, watch what you eat. Don't drink a lot of alcohol and exercise. And that keeps you, you know, I liked working out before work because it got me mentally clear before yes. I got there. Um, Daubert. So uh, I don't know if you follow this, but the Florida Supreme Court just recently uh, unilaterally on its own inherent rulemaking authority overruled the prior Florida Supreme Court to basically, uh, I'm oversimplifying, mm -hmm. but to basically reinstitute Daubert in state court. Away from Fry now, Daubert. Away from Fry. So it was Fry, mm -hmm. Daubert, Fry, right. back to Daubert. Okay. Unilateral, the Florida Supreme Court, under its no case before it, um, reconstituted, comes out with this decision. Hmm. We have a case or controversy requirement in federal court. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 so, so the issue that I'd love to pick your brain on, what, what I'm seeing is a lot of uh, state court practitioners that have done a lot less uh, work with Daubert are freaking out. Yeah, in fact, I think August 27th, Millette Weber asked me to speak on Daubert at the Central Florida Trial Lawyer oh, great. meeting. So I'm doing that at Dubstrad. The, the key to Daubert is understanding, obviously, the difference between it and Fry, that the judge's gatekeeper role is different, and that's going to be a learning curve for judges who don't apply it. And it's, um, it's really going back to my mantra of being prepared. So your expert has to be prepared to address their methodology and the reliability and how it helps the jury and all of this not just that there is an sae paper you know society of automotive engineer paper out there that says this or that there's some study someplace that says that that's that's helpful but it needs to be on point to the litigation you have to have the right background education training you know that that whole yes. it's a it's a more in-depth process 
So preparing your expert, and in federal court, preparing the expert report, because you live and die by your expert report. And if it's thin, you're in trouble. And so um, in state court, you can have expert disclosures that are a lot more thin, but the deposition, you're gonna be limited to your deposition, and that's where your Dalbert fight's gonna arise from is the, that methodology. It's a prep for the depot. I, to me, that's it. It's, prep. It, it's, it's not about trying to clean it up right. later. Right. After the Daubert motion's Too filed. Late. It's really the prep for the depot. Particularly in federal court, where we often rule on motions without a hearing. Now, Daubert, I'll, I'll offer a hearing because they may want to call their experts, but the experts still confine to their report. It's all about prep, and it's a different, it's a different animal. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I think a lot of people are uh, overreacting because I, I think usually, at least in my experience, Daubert cuts both ways. Sure. And, and in my world, I like the fact that uh, the opposition can't just pull stuff out of a hat. And, and I don't want to say make stuff up. That's an overstatement. But just say it's based upon my training and experience. And they're saying things that, you know, are scientific. Right. But then couching it in, this is just my training and experience. And they're saying things that, that I don't believe can often withstand Daubert. Daubert is good for cleaning out the garbage. That's what it's for. I had a case. I won't get too specific, but the case is over. <clears throat> but the... Um, Major dispute between, you know, company A and company B over contract interpretation and company B wants to bring in an expert witness who's a lawyer that's going to explain to the jury the terms of the contract, legal understanding of the terms. There's case law in this circuit saying that you don't need an expert in the law to come tell the jury what the law is. That's what your judge is for. So that expert was stricken, right? Not helpful to the jury. That's why I'm here. And so that was an unnecessary witness not particularly helpful because the jury will have to understand the law based on what I tell them. And that's how it is. So Dalbert, um, you know, there's a fair number of witnesses who get stricken under Dalbert. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out in state court. It was, it was almost like the judges were uh, getting comfortable. Right. And then it changed and now it's changing back. So right. there might be a- Fry's a too low curve. of a bar in my opinion. It's too low of a bar. You can, if you can just point to some study you're in, and that's not necessarily helpful. Let's, let's talk just a, a little bit about the choice to be a judge. I just, I, I sense someone's going to listen to this and they've asked themselves the question, um, do I want to be a judge someday, whether it's federal or state court? If you were to uh, give like a series of questions that someone might ask themselves or a flow in figuring out, am I really called to be a judge? Because in my opinion, very few people are called to judge in that way. It requires a, a different something. I'm not sure exactly what. How would you, what advice if, if somebody came to you and they said, Judge Byron, I'm thinking about this. Do you think... Um, I'm the right kind of person to do Yeah, this. I've actually had this conversation with a couple of young uh, assistant U.S. attorneys who are either being considered for a circuit court appointment in the state system or, or thinking about applying for a magistrate position someplace. And um, I say to them what I would say to myself if I knew what I know now, you know, because I'd never had been a judge. I didn't know any personally other than appearing before them. Um, make sure it's you, if you're going to do this, pick the right time of life for you. For me personally, 
I was uh, a couple of days short of 55 when I took the bench, and that was about right. If I had been any younger, I would not be happy. I was just still too full of fire to be comfortable, you know, being an umpire. And uh, so you have to ask yourself seriously, when's the right time for you? And then you have to be aware of the life change. So if you really love trying cases, that's over. As you know that life, it is gone. Um, it's also a fairly monastic life because the nature of the job. So if you're a social person, as I am, you know, I did a lot with my colleagues in the bar and really enjoyed it. But, you know, we come in uh, to this monastery, you know, in this underground garage and come up through a back elevator and go into our chambers that's on the other side of that wall. And I see my three law clerks and then I go home. And that's kind of a repeat unless I'm in court, you know, for a hearing or what have you. So it's a much more monastic, quiet, pensive, you know, not pensive, but a, a thoughtful sort of life that you have to know you'll be comfortable with. Seems like it would be lonely. It's, it is a very solitary job. It's a very solitary job, which is why I enjoy so much my travel abroad to work with other judges because I kind of, you know, get off campus a little bit, which is nice. Uh, but it's a very solitary job. It's not for everybody. Um, you also should not do it at all if your reason is you want to be called your honor, right? I mean, if, if the idea of being a judge and the, you know, quote unquote prestige is what's driving you, you're the wrong person for the job. It is a job like any other job. We have trappings that go with it because it's necessary. But if you're there because you, you know, just are thrilled with the idea of climbing the steps to get to your seat, then you should not do it because you are in a lot of ways, kind of the least important person in the room. You really are. You're there to make sure the rules are followed. That's it. You should be seen and not heard as much as possible. Career paths for other people. Yours has been varied, and, and I get the sense. Uh, it's not like you sat there in, uh, at LSU Law School and, <laughs> and charted out this pathway that it was going to, someday I'm going to be a federal district court judge. I know you have three kids of your own. Uh, what advice do you give younger folks or even middle-aged folks on trying to find their career path? The same thing I tell my law clerks and my son who's a lawyer, um, be open to change and trust yourself, which are two really tough things. I hate change, which is a crazy thing to say in light of my career, but I hate change. I resist it so hard, but I can feel you know, it's kind of like riding with one foot on the gas and one on the brake. I can feel that I want to go, but I don't want to let off the brake just yet. So I, I have to kind of take that plunge. I've had a really enjoyable career because uh, when I was in the Army, I loved it. And the colonel that I worked for, uh, he had taken a real interest in me and had lined up a wonderful job for me uh, at another stage that was just fantastic. And I walked away from that to go back to Florida because I didn't want to move my kids all over the country, which was common back then. So I, I quit a great job. And then I um, leave a big law firm because I'm not really happy. That was an easier choice. And then I'm in the Department of Justice and I'm loving it. I mean, it's just the, you know, I'm young, I'm in my thirties and it's, we're just having big, big cases. Big cases interesting. And, right. They're covered in the news and they're, you know, international criminal cases. I mean, it was really, really interesting stuff. Uh, we'd have trials with you know 10 defense and 10 lawyers it's you know it's really dynamic in the room but i got to a point where it was just kind of time to leave that before i no longer was doing it at the right level so i went to the hague and um 
you have to be willing if if you feel the desire for change you have to be willing to trust yourself and make the change i would really say that's the key to being happy is trusting yourself and making change if you don't like what you're doing do something else and that's the path i've kind of taken when i was in my practice you know it was going great we were very successful this came along and i thought you know uh, like every trial lawyer i complain about judges so i can be one or i can complain about them and i just decided i love public service this is um, something that I think I'd be pretty good at, so I'm going to give it a go. And Anything else on your radar? When this is done, I'll do something else. I don't know what. You know, some judges stay forever, and I respect that. There are a lot of them that stay into their 80s and so forth. Maybe that'll happen. You know, I've lived long enough to know. You don't. You never know. But you do have lifetime tenure. I mean, it, I know. You, you, I mean, just the <laughs> thought of someone having lifetime right. tenure as a federal judge yeah. and then choosing it what 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 would be the potential if you're willing to share and if not it's cool yeah I, I guess it'll depend on what's in front of me you know there could be an interesting job um at an in-house counsel it could be mediating and arbitrating it could be who knows what yeah you know it's, it's just i'm always open to what is next and it federal may, appellate any interest in that not at all not my cup of tea okay uh, this is solitary that is solitary times 10 you know that would just not be for me uh, I really enjoyed arguing appellate cases. I sat on the 11th Circuit once, and uh, uh, for a few days, you know, they do a handful of hearings over a few days. And it's fun, but they only have hearings about five weeks a year. Okay. I can't imagine <laughs> that. I mean, yes. I, my favorite time is in the courtroom with the lawyers. That, to me, is hands down the best part of the job. <laughs> That'd be a cool job. It would be a cool job. Um, Okay, I, I've been asking every person that I'm, uh, I'm interviewing um, the same two questions. And, and the first one is this. If you were to speak to a, a group of people, say ages, they've graduated from law school and they're 25 to 35-ish, and you were to kind of give them some counsel, wisdom, advice, what would you say? I would tell you that notwithstanding your student loan debts, if you want to be a trial lawyer, uh, don't go to the big firm right away. Go to a state attorney's office or a public defender's office, get in the courtroom as much as you can. Even if it's misdemeanors, you know, you're going to start in misdemeanor, work your way to felony. Spend three, four years doing that, try cases, then go practice the art of being a trial lawyer. So if you think you want to be a trial lawyer, go try cases. Pass on the money for a while. You know, you just have to do it. I'd also tell young people, when you get that first job and it's not maybe what you thought it would be, give yourself six months to a year before you really make a judgment. It takes time. I know this personally, that when you make a change, you've got to take some time <clears throat> to decide, is this a good fit? And usually you settle into something and it's, and it's better than you thought. And if it's not better than you think, or you know, if it's not fitting you, then change. Don't feel locked in because your whole life is affected by how happy you are at work. So if you're not happy at work, you're not happy. Not to say you'll find a job where there's never a bad day. I mean, you know, every job has it. I, I have motions I have to, to deal with and I'm thinking to myself, I really don't want to do this, but you do it. Uh, so I'd say that, you know, if you want to try cases, try them. When you take a big job on or if a new job on after law school, take some time to acclimate to it. And if you don't love it, find something you do love. Uh, those are, are really important things in your life. You know, you have to be happy. Uh, exercise, you know, be mindful. That really does matter. But it, lots of people get into a job and they think, God, I hate this. My life is terrible. Change your job. 
Just change your jobs. A million ways to make a living as a lawyer. It, it, that's that's good stuff. That really is. It seems like there's uh, people stay almost too long sometimes somewhere. They get used to making a certain amount of money, and then it's almost like they're captive. Uh, I see that a little more a little later in the career. It's like the the 30 to 40, they missed the window to shift in their minds. And now they're making a, a, an amount of money that they're comfortable at, their family counts on, and they feel captive. What, what would you say to those folks? Well, again, you have to trust yourself. So let's say, for example, I had friends when I was in the plaintiff's world who were defense lawyers who were really great people, very skillful, kind of had the golden handcuffs. They, they made a good living. They were fearful if they made the transition, it wouldn't work. And therefore, they you know, jeopardize their lifestyle so they don't make the leap. And that is certainly a risk, and you have to internalize that risk and be okay with it. But if, but you have to trust yourself. When I when I came in to practice with John Overchuck, I was 44, right? I mean, I was getting long in the tooth for making the transition, and um, and I just thought to myself, you know, I trust myself, so I'm going to go there and I'm going to make it happen, and I'm going to you know learn from this person and be the best I can be at and go do it, and that. Um, is sort of how I live by. You just have to trust yourself and be willing to go keep moving forward. And yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah, you have to do that. That's good. Uh, let's go a second age group. Now we're talking, say, 45 to 55. They've, they've established a foundation for their career. Um, they're comfortable in some way, but they've got plenty more time, plenty more energy. What advice would you give those folks? Oh, you're in the sweet spot. Enjoy it. You know, don't don't uh, lose sight of the fact how great it is to be right there where you have experience behind you and road ahead of you. You know, and I, I don't think retirement. I think that's a really dangerous mindset uh, because you always defer happiness to that magical date. Ha happiness is now. It's this very, very moment that you're in. So if you're in your practice and your family is at that wonderful age where they're still around you and growing, it, be aware it does not get any better than that ever. Retirement won't be better. Nothing is better than having your children, your spouse, your career, everything's ticking. It's, the, it's living today. And I think just be happy with the fact that you've, you've won. And don't compare yourself to everyone else. That's so good. Right? I made yeah. a, a fair amount of money in private practice. There are people who made a fair amount more. And there are people who made a fair amount less. That's the nature of it. That does not matter one bit. It's, it's you being happy in who you are. That's, that's so good. I talked to uh, someone at breakfast the other day, and they're basically retired, and they hang around a bunch of rich people and, right. and not some not-so-rich people. And I said, what do you see? He's older. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you see the most common thread of the people that are most happy. Mm -hmm. And he said they don't compare themselves. You can't do They this. don't compare themselves up or down. They just look at their life. Right, if you're comparing down, it's because you're belittling the people below you. Right. Trying to feel more important yourself. Right, and that's, you know, that's an empty uh, process. And if you're comparing yourself to people with more, then you're also gonna feel bad about yourself. So why compare? You know, I mean, it's just, it's a silly thing. If you wanna compare yourself, Think about how lucky you are to be alive in this country. You know, even as challenging as times can be in this country from time to time, you are here. And the overwhelming living condition in the rest of the world is desperate compared to all of the civilized, developed, industrialized world. So you, I've been out there a fair amount all over the globe. And I've seen some 
unbelievable poverty. And I've seen some really happy people living in unbelievable poverty. Yes. So it's, it's being aware that, you know, you have to be happy with what you have and recognize the things that matter. To me, that's your family and your friends. That's what matters the most. Well, let me, uh, let me end on, on this area, uh, family, because uh, you've been married how long? 35 years. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Um, marital advice? Uh, I will tell you, for me, uh, you don't compromise when you do something for your spouse. It's not a compromise. You're not compromising to your spouse. You're compromising to your marriage. Right. Think of it as a as the goal is your marriage. So if if my wife has something that I do that annoys her, uh, which I certainly do, um, she's been really great about always talking to me about whatever it is when she's not angry with me. And we've been doing that since we've been dating. And she was 17 when I started dating her. So she's always been very mature. And uh, you talk things out when you're not angry. And you listen and you're willing to compromise to your marriage, compromise for the benefit of your marriage. Don't feel like you're giving something up. You're giving something in. You're contributing in. You're not giving up. The other thing I try to do, and I would recommend this to everybody who's married, spend a little bit of time every day, even if it's just driving to work, and ask yourself once a day at some point, why, why was this person someone I couldn't live without, right? I mean, this was a person you chose out of every other human being on the planet for a reason, see that in them when you when you see them don't hesitate to say thank you don't hesitate to be a little humble that's that's really take a moment just to realize this person's awesome yeah that's great that really is uh i heard a funny story about you uh somehow uh having a sense enough of a sense of humor that led some opposing counsel to wear shorts to a deposition in the British Virgin Islands. <laughs> I remember my, that. <laughs> my, my question to you would be, in a world that seems uh, serious and has an amount of weight to it in terms of your responsibility as a judge, um, and frankly, even I can tell your marriage, you have a responsibility to keep that going and strong and, and kids and how you see the world. Um, how do you keep a sense of humor? I, I think I have a, I always had a really good sense of humor. I find, I find comedy in everything. I mean, life is funny and it's funny when it's funny. It's funny when it's sad. It's just funny. And you just have to be willing to laugh at yourself, you know, not take yourself too seriously. You have to be willing to look for the things that are funny and lighthearted. I mean, you just can't get caught up in the doom and gloom. It's a, it's a terrible way to live. So you have to be, um, I mean, I think I'm funny. I don't know if my kids entirely agree, <laughs> but I think I'm pretty funny. And I enjoy, you know, I just enjoy it. So, you, you know, you just have to seek it out. And, and final question, uh, where are you finding fun nowadays? Like, what do you, where do you find fun? In a lot of different ways. Um, in my personal life, it's always fun. You know, we just have a great time together. We're going on vacation in a couple of weeks and it's my idea of a perfect vacation. We're going with our family. So it's my wife and I, our two daughters, my son and his wife can't make it. They're planning an um, anniversary uh, vacation a little bit later. We're going with my nephew, his wife and their two kids. And we're going off and renting a home in Antigua and hanging out together. And last summer, eight of us went to the south of France together and we all stayed in the house and cooked together and drank wine together and traveled together. And it was my son and his wife, my daughter and her boyfriend, my youngest one, <clears throat> one of my uh, son and daughter-in-law's friends from college joined us out there. And we all just 
traveled together and had a great time. And you don't have to go to someplace exotic to do it. You know, we were just up in Ponce Inlet at the beach and doing the same sort of thing, and it was great. So you find fun with your family. I have fun with my law clerks. They're really a breath of fresh air every day. They're young, and it's all brand new, and it's, you know, it's so exciting to be around that, that energy that they have. Um, you know, you, you just find it. That's good stuff. Well, uh, anything else you want to say? Just I don't want to miss out if there's... Uh, realize, I would say this to everyone, particularly the young lawyers, realize that life is long and short at the same time. You know, I'm so close to my 60th birthday and my head explodes thinking about that because I still can remember starting my legal career. It doesn't seem that long ago. I, can, I have friends. We have a real diverse group of friends. My neighbors are two young doctors and they have an 18-month-old and they come over and hang out all the time. And um, I can remember being at that spot in life like it was yesterday. So it's long, but it's short. And don't take yourself too seriously. Have fun along the way. And, um, you know, just look for the good in life. That's what I would really tell people. It's a really, really quick journey. And if you spend it being angry about politics or your adversary or your you know, relationship, whatever, you're wasting it. And it's a one-way trip. I mean, all the way out the door. And that's, you know, as my tank gets down to the last quarter, <laughs> you know, you're a little bit more aware of it. You, uh, you might be half tank. Who knows? I, you might, I, I mean, <laughs> you, you look healthy. You got a vibrant brain. You yeah. might actually be, Maybe. you might still have half a tank. Maybe so. Uh, well, I am so appreciative of your time and your uh, vulnerability and your wisdom. And uh, I really, truly, whatever else is out there for you and right where you're at, I wish you the very best. Thank you. Okay. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.